0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low, net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.
1: Section 7 of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Ava Stays. The Desmondal Dis je en en cal de etre verte cache. There be three things which are too wonderful for me, ye, four which I know not the way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a maid. One. The utter desolation of the scene began to have its effect. I sat down to face the situation and, if possible, recall to mind some landmark which might aid me in extracting myself from my present position. If I could only find the ocean again, all would be clear, for I knew one could see the island of Gua from the cliffs. I laid down my gun, and kneeling behind a rock lighted a pipe. Then I looked at my watch. It was nearly four o'clock. I might have wandered far from Kursilect since daybreak. Standing the day before on the cliffs below Kursilect was Gulven, looking out over the somber moors among which I had now lost my way. These downs had appeared to me level as a meadow, stretching to the horizon, and although I knew how deceptive is distance, I could not realize that what from Kursalek seemed to be mere grassy hollows were great valleys covered with gorse and heather, and what looked like scattered boulders were in reality enormous cliffs of granite. "'It's a bad place for a stranger,' old Golvin had said. "'You better take a guide,' and I had replied, "'I shall not lose myself.' Now I knew that I had lost myself, as I sat there smoking.' With the sea wind blowing in my face on every side stretched the moorland covered with flowering gorse and heath and granite boulders there was not a tree in sight much less a house after a while i picked up the gun and turning my back on the sun tramped on again there was little use in following any of the brawling streams which every now and then crossed my path for instead of flowing into the sea they ran inland to reedy pools in the hollows of the moors i had followed several but they all led me to swamps or silent little ponds from which the snipe rose peeping and wheeled away in ecstasy of fright i began to feel fatigued and the gun galed my shoulder in spite of the double pads the sun sank lower and lower shining level across yellow gorse and the moorland pools as i walked my own gigantic shadow led me on seeming to lengthen at every step the gorse scraped against my leggings crackled beneath my feet showering the brown earth with blossoms and the brake bowed and billowed along my path from the tufts of heath rabbits scurried away through the bracken and among the swamp grass i heard the wild ducks drowsy quack once a fox stole across my path and again As I stooped to drink at a hurrying rill, a heron flapped heavily from the reeds beside me. I turned to look at the sun. It seemed to touch the edges of the plain. When at last I decided that it was useless to go on, and that I must make up my mind to spend at least one night on the moors, I threw myself down, thoroughly fagged out. The evening sunlight slanted warm across my body, but the sea winds began to rise, and I felt a chill strike through me from my wet shooting boots. High overhead, gulls were wheeling and tossing like bits of white paper. From some distant marsh, a solitary curlew called. Little by little, the sun sank into the plain, and the zents flushed with the afterglow i watched the sky change from palest gold to pink and then to smouldering fire clouds of midges danced above me and high in the calm air a bat dipped and soared my eyelids began to droop then as i shook off the drowsiness a sudden crash among the bracken roused me i raised my eyes a great bird hung quivering in the air above my face for an instant i stared incapable of motion then something leaped past me in the ferns and the bird rose wheeled and pitched headlong into the brake. i was on my feet in an instant peering through the gorse there came the sound of a struggle from a bunch of heather close by and then all was quiet i stepped forward my gun posed but when i came to the heather the gun fell under my arm again and i stood motionless in silent astonishment a dead hare lay on the ground and on the hair stood a magnificent falcon one talon buried in the creature's neck the other planted firmly on its limp flank but what astonished me was not the mere sight of a falcon sitting upon its prey i had seen that more than once it was that the falcon was fitted with a sort of leash about both talons and from the leash hung a round bit of metal like a sleigh-bell the bird turned its fierce yellow eyes on me and then stooped and struck its curved beak, into the quarry. At the same instant, hurried steps sounded among the heather, and a girl sprang into the covert in front. Without a glance at me, she walked up to the falcon, and passing her gloved hand under its breast, raised it from the quarry. Then, she deftly slipped a small hood over the bird's head, and holding it out on her gauntlet, stooped and picked up the hair. She passed a cord about the animal's legs, and fastened the end of the thong to her girdle then she started to retrace her steps through the covert as she passed me i raised my cap and she acknowledged my presence with a scarcely perceptible inclination i had been so astonished so lost in admiration of the scene before my eyes that it had not occurred to me that here was my salvation but as she moved away i recollected that unless i wanted to sleep on a windy moor that night i had better recover my speech without delay at my first word she hesitated and as i stepped before her i thought a look of fear came into her beautiful eyes but as i humbly explained my unpleasant plight her face flushed and she looked at me in wonder surely you did not come here from curselot she repeated her sweet voice had no trace of the breton accent nor any accent which i knew and yet there was something in it i seemed to have heard before something quaint and indefinable like a theme of an old song I explained that I was an American, unacquainted with the Finisterre, shooting there for my own amusement. An American, she repeated in the same quaint musical tones, I have never before seen an American. For a moment she stood silent, then looking at me she said, if you should walk all night you could not reach Kersalek now, even if you had a guide. This was pleasant news, but I began, if I could only find a peasant's hut where I might get something to eat and shelter. The falcon on her wrist fluttered and shook its head. The girl smoothed its glossy back and glanced at me. Look around, she said gently. Can you see the end of these moors? Look, north, south, east, west. Can you see anything but moorland and bracken? No, I said. The moor is wild and desolate, it is easy to enter, but sometimes they who enter never leave it. There are no peasants hot here. Well, I said, if you will tell me in which direction Kursak lies, tomorrow it will take me no longer to go back than it has to come. She looked at me again with an expression almost like pity. Ah, uh, she said, to come is easy and takes hours, to go is different and may take centuries. I stared at her in amazement, but decided that I had misunderstood her. Then, Before I had time to speak, she drew a whistle from her belt and sounded it. "'Sit down and rest,' she said to me. "'You have come a long distance and are tired.' She gathered up her pleated skirts and, motioning me to follow, picked her dainty way through the gorse and a flat rock among the ferns. "'They will be here directly,' she said and taking a seat at one end of the rock invited me to sit down at the other edge. The afterglow was beginning to fade in the sky, and a single star twinkled faintly through the rosy haze. A long, wavering triangle of waterfowl drifted southward over our heads, and from the swamps a round plover were calling. "'They are very beautiful, these moors,' she said quietly. "'Beautiful, but cruel to strangers,' I answered. Beautiful and cruel, she repeated dreamily. Beautiful and cruel. Like a woman, I said stupidly. Oh, she cried with a little catch in her breath and looked at me, her dark eyes to mine, and I thought she seemed angry or frightened. Like a woman, she repeated under her breath. How cruel to say so. Then after a pause, as though speaking aloud to herself, how cruel of him to say that i don't know what sort of apology i offered for my inane though harmless speech but i know that she seemed so troubled about it that i began to think i had said something very dreadful without knowing it and remembered with horror the pitfalls and snares which the french language sets for foreigners While i was trying to imagine what i might have said a sound of voices came across the moor and the girl rose to her feet No she said with a trace of a smile on her pale face i will not accept apologies monsieur but i must prove you wrong and that shall be my revenge look here come pester and Raoul, two men loomed up in the twilight one had a sack across his shoulders and the other carried a hoop before him as a waiter carries a tray the hoop was fastened with straps to his shoulders and around the edge of the circlet sat three hooded falcons fitted with tinkling bells the girl stepped up to the falconer and with a quick turn of her wrist transferred her falcon to the hoop where it quickly sidled off and nestled among its mates who shook their hooded heads and ruffled the feathers till the bell jessies tinkled again the other man stepped forward and bowing respectfully took up the hair and dropped it into the game sack these are my piquets said the girl turning to me with gentle dignity Raoul is a good falconer, and I shall some day make him a grand veneer. Pasture is incomparable. The two silent men saluted me respectfully. Did I not tell you, monsieur, that I should prove you wrong? She continued. This, then, is my revenge, that you do me the courtesy of accepting food and shelter at my own house. Before I could answer, she spoke to the falconers, who started instantly across the heath and with a gracious gesture to me she followed. I don't know whether I made her understand how profoundly grateful I felt, but she seemed pleased to listen, as we walked over the dewy heather. "'Are you not very tired?' she asked. I had clean forgotten my fatigue in her presence, and I told her so. "'Don't you think your gallantry is a little old-fashioned?' she said, when I looked confused and humbled, she added quietly, oh i like it i like everything old-fashioned and it is delightful to hear you say such pretty things the moorland around us was very still now under its ghostly sheet of mist the plovers had ceased their calling the crickets and all the little creatures of the fields were silent as we passed yet it seemed to me as if i could hear them beginning again far behind us well in advance the two tall falconers strode across the heather and the faint jingling of the hawk's bells came to our ears in distant murmuring chimes suddenly a splendid hound dashed out in the mist in front followed by another and another until half a dozen or more were bounding and leaping around the girl beside me she caressed and quieted them with her gloved hand speaking to them in quaint terms which i remembered to have seen in old french manuscripts then the falcons on the circle borne by the falconer ahead began to beat their wings and scream and from somewhere out of sight the notes of a hunting horn floated across the moor the hounds sprang away before us and vanished in the twilight the falcons flapped and squealed upon their perch and the girl taking up the song of the horn began to hum clear and mellow her voice sounded in the night air Chasseur, chasseur, chassez encore. quitte rosette et geneton tonton 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 tontan tonton ou poa robatra des lorar coulez moi soit de planton tonton tontan tonton as i listened to her lovely voice a grey mass which rapidly grew more distinct loomed up in front and the horn rang out joyously through the tumult of the hounds and falcons. A torch glimmered at a gate, a light streamed through an opening door, and we stepped upon a wooden bridge which trembled under our feet, and rose creaking and straining behind us as we passed over the moat and into a small stone court, walled on every side. From an open doorway a man came, and bending in salutation, presented a cup to the girl beside me. She took the cup and touched it with her lips, then, lowering it, turned to me and said in a low voice, I bid you welcome. At that moment, one of the falconers came up with another cup, but before handing it to me, presented it to the girl who tasted it. The falconer made a gesture to receive it, but she hesitated a moment, and then, stepping forward, offered me the cup with her own hands. I felt this to be an act of extraordinary graciousness but hardly knew what was expected of me, and did not raise it to my lips at once, the girl flushed crimson, I saw that I must act quickly. Mademoiselle, I faltered, a stranger whom you have saved from dangers he may never realize empties this cup to the gentlest and loveliest hostess of France. In his name, she murmured, crossing herself as I drained the cup, then stepping into the doorway she turned to me with a pretty gesture and taking my hand in hers led me into the house saying again and again you are very welcome indeed you are welcome to the chateau two i awoke next morning with the music of the horn in my ears and leaping out of the ancient bed went to a curtained window where the sunlight filtered through little deep-set panes the horn ceased and i looked into the court below a man who might have been brother to the two falconers of the night before stood in the midst of a pack of hounds a curved horn was strapped over his back and in his hand he held a long lashed whip the dogs whined and yelped dancing around him in anticipation there was the stamp of horses too in the walled yard mount cried a voice in breton and with a clatter of hoofs the two falconers with falcons upon their wrists Rode into the courtyard among the hounds then i heard another voice which sent the blood throbbing to my heart peror louis hunt the hounds well and spare neither spur nor whip. thou ral and thou gaston see that the epivier does not prove himself niais and if it be best in your judgment fit courtesie a l'usu, jardinier en like the way there on Hastur's wrist, is not difficult, but thou, Ral, mayest not find it so simple to govern the agard. Twice last week he foamed a vif and l'off the becquet, though he is used to the loo. The birds act like a stupid branchet, patre on agard n'est pas si facile. Was I dreaming? The old language of falconry, which I had read in yellow manuscripts, the old forgotten French of the Middle Ages, was sounding in my ears while the hounds bayed and the hawk's bells tinkled accompaniment to the stamping horses. She spoke again in the sweet forgotten language. If you'd rather attach the longe and leave thy aggro bloc, ral, I shall say nothing, for it were a pity to spoil so fair a day's sport with an ill-trained soi- Bessier it is possible the best way Sa li de Rome I was perhaps hasty with the bird. It takes time to pass a la Filier, and the exercise escap. Then the falconer round bowed in his stirrups and replied If it be the pleasure of the Mademoiselle I shall keep the hawk. It is my wish, she answered. Falconry I know. "'but you have yet to give me many a lesson. "'Otou oh, my poor ral. "'Sir Pierrot, Louis, mount!' "'The huntsman sprang into an archway "'and in an instant return, "'mounted upon a strong black horse, "'followed by a Piqueur also mounted. "'Ah!' she cried joyously. "'Speed, Glamourac René! "'Speed, speed all! "'Sound thy horn, Sir Pierrot the silvery music of the hunting-horn filled the courtyard the hounds sprang through the gateway and galloping hoof-beats plunged out the paved court loud on the drawbridge suddenly muffled then lost in the heather and the bracken of the moors distant and more distant sounded the horn until it became so faint that the sudden carol of a soaring lark drowned it in my ears i heard the voice below responding to some call from within the house i do not regret the chase i will go another time courtesy to the stranger pelagie remember and a feeble voice came quavering from within the house Cultra-Z. i stripped and rubbed myself from head to foot in the huge earthen basin of icy water which stood upon the stone floor at the foot of my bed then i looked about for my clothes they were gone but on a saddle near their door lay a heap of garments which i inspected with astonishment as my clothes had vanished i was compelled to attire myself in the costume which had evidently been placed there for me to wear while my own clothes dried everything was there cap shoes and hunting doublet of silvery grey homespun but the close-fitting costume and seamless shoes belonged to another century and i remembered the strange costumes of the three falconers In the courtyard i was sure that it was not the modern dress of any portion of france or brittany but not until i was dressed and stood before a mirror between the windows did i realize that i was clothed much more like a young huntsman of the middle ages than like a breton of that day i hesitated and picked up the cap should i go down and present myself in that strange guise there seemed to be no help for it my own clothes were gone and there was no bell in the ancient chamber to call a servant, so I contented myself with removing a short hawk's feather from the cap, and, opening the door, went downstairs. By the fireplace in the large room at the foot of the stairs an old Breton woman sat spinning with a distaff. She looked up at me when I appeared, and, smiling frankly, wished me health in the Breton language, to which I laughingly replied in French, At the same moment, my hostess appeared and returned my salutation with a grace and dignity that sent a thrill to my heart. Her lovely head, with its dark curly hair, was crowned with a headdress, which set all doubts as to the epic of my own costume at rest. Her slender figure was exquisitely set off in the homespun hunting gown edged with silver, and on her gauntlet-covered wrist she bore one of her petted hawks with perfect simplicity she took my hand and led me into the garden in the court and seating herself before a table invited me very sweetly to sit beside her then she asked me in her soft quaint accent how i had passed the night and whether i was very much inconvenienced by wearing the clothes which old pelagie had put there for me while i slept i looked at my own clothes and shoes drying in the sun by the garden wall and hated them What horrors they were compared to the graceful costume which I now wore. I told her this laughing, but she agreed with me very seriously. We will throw them away, she said in a quiet voice. In my astonishment, I attempted to explain that I not only could not think of accepting clothes from anybody, although, for all I knew, it might be the custom of hospitality in that part of the country, but that I should cut an impossible figure if I returned to France close, as I was then. She laughed and tossed her pretty head, saying something in Old French which I did not understand, and then Pelagie trotted out with a tray on which stood two bowls of milk, a loaf of white bread, fruit, a platter of honeycomb, and a flagon of deep red wine. You see, I have not yet broken my fast because I wished you to eat with me, but I am very hungry. She smiled. I would rather die than forget one word of what you have said, I blurted out, while my cheeks burned. She will think me mad, I added to myself, but she turned to me with sparkling eyes. Ah, she murmured, then monsieur knows all that there is of chivalry. She crossed herself and broke bread. I sat and watched her white hands, not daring to raise my eyes to hers. Will you not eat? she asked. Why do you look so troubled? Ah, why, I knew it now. I knew I would give my life to touch with my lips those rosy palms i understand now that from the moment when i looked into her dark eyes there on the moor last night i had loved her my great and sudden passion held me speechless are you ill at ease she asked again then like a man who pronounces his own doom i answered in a low voice yes i am ill at ease for love of you and she did not stir nor answer the same power moved my lips in spite of me and i said i who am unworthy of the lightest of your thoughts i who abuse hospitality and repay your gentle courtesy with bold presumption i love you she leaned her head upon her hands and answered softly i love you your words are very dear to me i love you then i shall win you win me she replied But all the time I had been sitting silent, my face turned toward her. She, also silent, her sweet face resting on her upturned palm, sat facing me. And as her eyes looked into mine, I knew that neither she nor I had spoken human speech. But I knew that her soul had answered mine. And I drew myself up, feeling youth and joyous love coursing through every vein. She, a bright color in her lovely face seemed as one awakened from a dream, and her eyes sought mine with a questioning glance, which made me tremble with delight. We broke our fast. Speaking of ourselves, I told her my name, and she told me hers, the Desmond Jeanne Jean Dice. She spoke of her father and mother's death, and how the nineteen of her years had been passed in the little fortified farm alone with her nurse, Pelagie, Glenmorac, Rene, the Piquaire, and the four falconers Raoul, gaston hastur and the Sieur pierrot louis who had served her father she had never been outside the moorland never even had seen a human soul before except the falconers pelagie she did not know how she had heard of kristalak perhaps the falconers had spoke of it she knew the legends of loup and the jean La flemme from her nurse pelagie she embroidered and spun flax her hawks and hounds were her only distraction when she had met me there on the moor she had been so frightened that she almost dropped at the sound of my voice she had it was true seen ships at sea from the cliffs but as far as the eye could reach the moors over which she galloped were destitute of any sign of human life there was a legend which old pelagie told how anybody once lost in the unexplored moorland might never return because the moors were enchanted she did not know whether it was true she had never thought about it until she met me she did not know whether the falconers had been outside or whether they could go if they would the books in the house which Pelagie, the nurse had taught her to read were hundreds of years old all of this she told me with a sweet seriousness seldom seen in any one but children my own name she found easy to pronounce and insisted because my first name was philip that i must have french blood in me she did not seem curious to learn anything about the outside world and i thought perhaps she had considered had forfeited her interest and respect from the stories of her nurse we were still sitting at the table and she was throwing grapes to the small field birds which came fearlessly out of her feet i began to speak in a vague way of going But she would not hear of it and before i knew it i had promised to stay a week and hunt with hawk and hound in their company i also obtained permission to come again from kursola and visit her after my return why she said innocently i do not know what i should do if you never came back and i knowing that i had no right to awaken her with the sudden shock which the avowal of my own love would bring to her sat silent hardly daring to breathe You will come often, she said. Very often, I said. Every day? Every day. Oh, she sighed. I am very happy. Come and see my hawks. She rose and took my hand again, with a childlike innocence of possession, and we walked through the gardens and fruit trees to a grassy lawn, which was bordered by a brook. Over the lawn were scattered fifteen or twenty- stumps of trees partially embedded in the grass and upon all of these except two sat falcons they were attached to the stumps by thongs which were in turn fastened with steel rivets to their legs just above the talons a little stream of pure spring water flowed in a winding course within easy reach of each perch the birds set up a clamour when the girl appeared but she went from one to another caressing some taking others for an instant upon her wrist or stooping to adjust their jessies. "'Are they not pretty?' she said. "'See, here is the falcon genteel. We call it ignoble, because it takes the quarry in direct chase. This is a blue falcon, In Valkyrie, we call it noble, because it rises over the quarry, and wheeling drops upon it from above. This white bird is a drur falcon from the north. It is also noble. Here is a merlin, and this terselech is a falcon heriner.' i asked her how she had learned the old language of falconry she did not remember but thought her father must have taught it to her when she was very young then she led me away and showed me the young falcons still in the nest they are termed yes in falconry she explained a branchet is a young bird which is just able to leave the nest and hop from branch to branch a young bird which has not yet molted its call an amui is a hawk which has molted in captivity. When we catch a wild falcon, which has changed its plumage, we call it an aggard. Ral first taught me to dress a falcon. Shall I teach you how it's done? She seated herself on the bank of the stream among the falcons, and I threw myself at her feet to listen. Then the Desmideltes held up one rosy-tipped finger and began very gravely, First one must catch the falcon. I am caught, I answered. She laughed very prettily and told me that my dressage would perhaps be difficult, as I was noble. I am already tamed, I replied, jessied and belled. She laughed, delighted. Oh, my brave falcon, then will you return at my call? I am yours, I answered gravely. She sat silent for a moment, then the color heightened in her cheeks and she held up her finger again, saying, listen, I wish to speak of falconry. I listen, Countess Jeanne Dis, but, again, she fell into the reverie, and her eyes seemed fixed on something beyond the summer clouds. Philip, she said at last. Jeanne, I whispered. That is all, that is all I wished, she sighed. Philip and Jeanne. She held her hand towards me, and I touched it with my lips. Win me, she said, but this time it was the body and the soul which spoke in unison. After a while, she began again. Let us speak of falconry. Begin, I replied. We have caught the falcon. Then Jean Deese took my hand in both of hers and told me how with infinite patience the young falcon was taught to perch upon the wrist, how little by little it became used to the bell jessies and the chaperon on cornet. They must first have a good appetite, she said. Then, little by little, I reduced their nourishment, which in falconry we call pot, when after many nights have passed O bloc as these birds are now i prevail upon the agar to stay quietly on the wrist. then the bird is ready to be taught to come for its food i fix the pat to the end of a thong or lue, and teach the bird to come to me as soon as i begin to whirl the cord in circles about my head at first i drop the pat when the falcon comes and he eats the food on the ground After a little while, he will learn to seize the lure in motion as I whirl it around my head or drag it over the ground. After this, it is easy to teach the falcon to strike at game, always remembering to faire courtesy de la that is, to allow the bird to taste the quarry. A squeal from one of the falcons interrupted her, and she rose to adjust the longe, which had become whipped about the block. But the bird still flapped its wings and screamed, "'What is the matter?' she said, Philip, can you see? I looked around, and at first saw nothing to cause commotion, which now heightened by the screams and flapping of all the birds. Then my eyes fell upon the rock beside the stream for which the girl had risen. A gray serpent was moving slowly across the surface of the boulder, and the eyes and it flat, triangular head sparkling like jet. A culevre, she said quietly. It is harmless, is it not? I asked. She pointed to the black, V-shaped figure on its neck. It is certain death. It is a viper. We watched the reptile moving slowly over the smooth rock to where the sunlight fell in a broad, warm patch. I started forward to examine it, but she clung to my arm, crying, Don't, Philip. I'm afraid. For me? For you, Philip. I love you. Then I took her in my arms and kissed her on the lips, but all I could say is, Gene, Jean, Jean, Jean and as she lay trembling on my breast something struck my foot in the grass below but i did not heed it then again something struck my ankle and a sharp pain shot through me i looked into the sweet face of jean dis and kissed her and with all my strength lifted her in my arms and flung her from me then bending i tore the viper from my ankle and set my heel upon its head i remember feeling weak and numb i remember falling to the ground through my slowly glazing eyes i saw jeanne's white face bending close to mine and when the light in my eyes went out i still felt her arms about my neck and her soft cheek against my drawn lips when i opened my eyes i looked around in terror jeanne was gone i saw the stream and the flat rock i saw the crushed viper in the grass beside me but the hawks and blocks had disappeared i sprang to my feet the garden the fruit trees the drawbridge and the walled court were gone, I stared stupidly at the heap of crumbling ruins, ivy-covered and gray, through which great trees had pushed their way. I crept forward, dragging my numb foot, and as I moved, a falcon sailed from the tree-tops among the ruins, and soaring, mounting in narrow circles, faded and vanished in the clouds above. Jean, Jean, I cried, but my voice died on my lips, and I fell on my knees among the weeds and as god willed it i not knowing had fallen kneeling before a crumbling shrine carved in stone for our mother of sorrows i saw the sad face of the virgin wrought in the cold stone i saw the cross and thorns at her feet and beneath it i read pray for the soul of desmonelle jean Dies, who died in her youth for the love of philip a stranger a d 1573." But upon the icy slab lay a woman's glove still warm and fragrant End of Section seven Section eight of the King and Yellow by Robert W. Chambers This Librivox recording is in the public domain recording by Eva Stays The Prophet's Paradise If but the vine and love abjuring band. Are in the prophet's paradise to stand alack i doubt the prophet's paradise were empty as the hollows of one's hand the studio he smiled saying seek her throughout the world i said why tell me of the world my world is here between these walls and the sheet of glass above here among gilded flagons and dull jewelled arms tarnished frames and canvases black chests and high-backed chairs quaintly carved and stained in blue and gold for whom do you wait he said and i answered when she comes i shall know her on my hearth a hung a flame whispered secrets to the whitening ashes in the street below i heard footsteps a voice and a song for whom then do you wait he said and i answered i shall know her footsteps a voice and a song in the street below and i knew the song but neither the steps nor the voice fool he cried the song is the same the voice and steps have but changed with years on the hearth a tongue of flame whispered above the whitening ashes wait no more they have passed the steps and the voice in the street below then he smiled saying for whom do you wait seek her throughout the world i answered my world is here between these walls and the sheet of glass above here among gilded flagons and dull jeweled arms tarnished frames and canvases black chests and high backed chairs quaintly carved and stained in blue and gold the phantom the phantom of the past would go no further if it is true she sighed that you find in me a friend let us turn back together you will forget here under the summer sky i held her close pleading caressing i seized her white with anger but she resisted if it is true she sighed that you find in me a friend let us turn back together the phantom of the past would go no further the sacrifice i went into a field of flowers whose petals are whiter than snow and whose heart are pure gold far afield a woman cried i have killed him i loved and from a jar she poured blood upon the flowers whose petals are whiter than snow and whose hearts are pure gold Far afield I followed, and on the jar I read a thousand names, while from within the fresh blood bubbled to the brim. I have killed him I loved. She cried. The world's athirst now, let it drink. She passed, and far afield I watched her pouring blood upon the flowers whose petals are whiter than snow and whose hearts are pure gold. Destiny. I came to the bridge, which few may pass. Pass, cried the keeper, but I laughed, saying, There is time, and he smiled and shut the gates. To the bridge, which few may pass, came young and old, all were refused. Idly I stood and counted them, until, wearied of their noise and lamentations, I came again to the bridge, which few may pass. Those in the throng about the gate shrieked out, he comes too late, but I laugh, saying, there is time. Pass, cried the keeper as I entered, then smiled and shut the gates. The Throng There, where the throng was thickest in the street, I stood with Periot. All eyes were turned on me. What are they laughing at? I asked. But he grinned, dusting the chalk from my black cloak. I cannot see. It must be something droll, perhaps an honest thief. All eyes were turned on me. He has robbed you of your purse, they laughed. My purse, I cried. Perriot, help, it is a thief, they laughed. He has robbed you of your purse. Then Truth stepped out, holding a mirror. If he is an honest thief, cried Truth, Perriot shall find him with this mirror. But he only grinned, dusting the chalk from my black cloak. You see, he said, Truth is an honest thief. She brings you back your mirror. All eyes were turned on me. A rash truth, I cried, forgetting it was not a mirror but a purse I lost, standing with Periot there, where the throng was thickest in the street. The jester. Was she fair? I asked, but he only chuckled, listening to the bells jingling on his cap. Stabbed, he tittered thinking of the long journey, the days of peril, the dreadful nights, thinking how he wandered, for her sake, year after year, through hostile lands, yearning for kith and kin, yearning for her. Stabbed, he tittered, listening to the bells jingling on his cap. Was she fair? I asked, but he only snarled, muttering to the bells jingling on his cap. She kissed him at the gate, he tittered, but in the hall his brother's welcome touched his heart. Was she fair? I asked. Stabbed, he chuckled. Think of the long journey, the days of peril, the dreadful nights. Think how he wandered, for her sake, year after year through hostile lands, yearning for kith and kin, yearning for her. She kissed him at the gate, but in the hall his brother's welcome touched his heart. Was she fair? I asked, but he only snarled, listening to the bells jingling in his cap the green room the clown turned his powdered face to the mirror if to be fair is to be beautiful he said who can compare with me in my white mask who can compare with him in his white mask? i asked of death beside me who can compare with me said death for i am paler still you are very beautiful sighed the clown turning his powdered face from the mirror the love test. If it is true that you love, said love, then wait no longer, give her these jewels which would dishonor her, and so dishonor you in loving one dishonored. If it is true that you love, said love, then wait no longer. I took the jewels and went to her, but she trod upon them sobbing, teach me to wait, I love you, then wait, if it is true, said love. End of section 8 section nine of the king in yellow by robert w chambers this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by eva stays the street of the four winds firm tes yeux à demi qu'as tes bras sur ton sein et de ton coeur endormi chasse à jamais Tout Discent Je chante la nature, les étoiles de Sois les lames du matin, le coucher de soleil à l'horizon lointain, Le ciel qui parlent ou cœur d'existence future. One, the animal paused on the threshold, interrogative, alert, ready for flight if necessary. Severn laid down his palette and held out a hand of welcome. The cat remained motionless, her yellow eyes fastened upon Severn. Puss, he said in his low, pleasant voice, come in. The tip of her thin tail twitched uncertainly. Come in, he said again. Apparently she found his voice reassuring, for she slowly settled upon all fours, her eyes still fastened upon him, her tail tucked under her gaunt flanks. He rose from his easel, smiling. She eyed him quietly, and when he walked towards her, she watched him bend above her without a wince. Her eyes followed his hand until it touched her head. Then she uttered a ragged mew. It had long been Severn's custom to converse with animals, probably because he lived so much alone, and now he said, "'What's the matter, puss?' Her timid eyes sought his. "'I understand,' he said gently. "'You shall have it at once.' Then, moving quietly about, he busied himself with the duties of a host." rinsed a saucer filled it with the rest of the milk from the bottle on the windowsill and kneeling down crumbled a roll into the hollow of his hand the creature rose and crept toward the saucer with the handle of a palette knife he stirred the crumbs and milk together and stepped back as she thrust her nose into the mess he watched her in silence from time to time the saucer clinked upon the tiled floor as she reached for a morsel on the rim and at last the bread was all gone, and her purple tongue travelled over every unlicked spot until the saucer shone like polished marble. Then she sat up, and coolly turning her back to him began her ablutions. "'Keep it up,' said Severn, much interested. "'You need it.' She flattened one ear, but neither turned nor interrupted her toilet. As the grime was slowly removed, Severne observed that nature had intended her for a white cat. Her fur had disappeared in patches, from disease or the chances of war. Her tail was bony and her spine sharp. But what charms she had were becoming apparent under vigorous licking, and he waited until she had finished before reopening the conversation. When at last she closed her eyes and folded her forepaws under her breast he began again, very gently, "'Puss, tell me your troubles.' At the sound of his voice she broke into a harsh rumbling, which he recognized as an attempt to purr. He bent over to rub her cheek, and she mewed again, an amiable, inquiring little mew, to which he replied, "'Certainly, you are greatly improved, and when you recover your plumage you will be a gorgeous bird.' Much flattered, she stood up and marched round and round his legs, pushing her head between them and making pleased remarks, to which he responded with grave politeness. "'Now, what sent you here?' he said, here into the street of the four winds, and up five flights to the very door where you would be welcome. What was it that prevented your mediated flight when I turned from my canvas to encounter your yellow eyes? Are you a Latin Quarter cat, as I am a Latin Quarter man?' And why do you wear a rose-colored, flowered garter buckled about your neck? The cat had climbed into his lap and now sat purring as he passed his hand over her thin coat. Excuse me, he continued in lazy, soothing tones, harmonizing with her purring. If I seem indelicate, but I cannot help musing on this rose-colored garter, flowered so quaintly and fastened with a silver clasp. For the clasp is silver i can see the mint mark on the edge as is prescribed by the law of the french republic now why is this garter woven of rose silk and delicately embroidered why is this silken garter with its silver clasp about your famished throat am i indiscreet when i inquire if its owner is your owner is she some aged dame living in memory of youthful vanities fond doting on you, decorating you with her intimate personal attire. The circumference of the garter would suggest this, for your neck is thin, and the garter fits you. But then again I notice, I notice most things, that the garter is capable of being much enlarged. These small, silver-rimmed eyelets, of which I count five, are proof of that. And now I observe that the fifth eyelet is worn out, as though the tongue of the clasp were accustomed to lie there that seems to argue a well-rounded form the cat curled her toes in contentment the street was very still outside he murmured on why should your mistress decorate you with an article most necessary to her at all times Anyway, at most times, how did she come to slip this bit of silk and silver about your neck? Was it the caprice of a moment, when you, before you had lost your pristine plumpness, marched singing into her bedroom to bid her good morning? Of course, and she sat up among the pillows, her coiled hair tumbling to her shoulders, as you sprang upon the bed purring, Good day, my lady. Oh, it is very easy to understand. He yawned. "'Resting his head on the back of the chair, "'the cat still purred, "'tightening and relaxing her padded claws over his knee. "'Shall I tell you all about her, cat? "'She is very beautiful, your mistress,' "'he murmured drowsily, "'and her hair is heavy as burnished gold. "'I could paint her, not on canvas, "'for I should need shades and tones and hues and dyes "'more splendid than the iris of a splendid rainbow.' I could only paint her with closed eyes, for in dreams alone can such colors as I need be found. For her eyes, I must have their azure from the skies untroubled by a cloud, the skies of dreamland. For her lips, roses from the palaces of slumberland, and for her brows, snowdrifts from the mountains which tower in fantastic pinnacles to the moons. Oh, much higher than our moon here, the crystal moons of dreamland, she is very beautiful your mistress the words died on his lips and his eyelids drooped the cat too was asleep her cheek turned up upon her wasted flank her paws relaxed and limp two it is fortunate said Severne, sitting up and stretching that we have tided over the dinner hour or have nothing to offer you for supper but what may be purchased with one silver franc. The cat on his knee rose, arched her back, yawned, and looked up at him. What shall it be, a roast chicken with salad? No, possibly you prefer beef. Of course, and I shall try an egg with some white bread. Now for the wines. Milk for you? Good. I shall take a little water, fresh from the wood, with a motion toward the bucket and the sink. He put on his hat and left the room. The cat followed to the door, and after he had closed it behind him, she settled down, smelling at the cracks and cocking one ear at every creak from the crazy old building. The door below opened and shut. The cat looked serious, for a moment doubtful, and her ears flattened in nervous expectation. Presently, she rose with a jerk of her tail and started on a noiseless tour of the studio she sneezed at a pot of turpentine hastily retreating to the table which she presently mounted and having satisfied her curiosity concerning a roll of red modelling wax returned to the door and sat down with her eyes on the crack over the threshold and then she lifted her voice in a thin plaint When Severn returned, he looked grave, but the cat, joyous and demonstrative, marched around him, rubbing her gaunt body against his legs, driving her head enthusiastically into his hand, and purring until her voice mounted to a squeal. He placed a bit of meat, wrapped in brown paper, upon the table, and with a penknife cut it into shreds, the milk he took from a bottle, which had served for medicine, and poured it into the saucer on the hearth. The cat crouched before it, purring and laughing at the same time. He cooked his egg and ate it with a slice of bread, watching her busy with the shredded meat, and when he had finished, and had filled and emptied a cup of water from the bucket in the sink, he sat down, taking her into his lap, where she at once curled up and began her toilet. He began to speak again, touching her caressingly at times, by way of emphasis— cat i have found out where your mistress lives it is not very far it is here under the same leaky roof but in the north wing which i had supposed was uninhabited my janitor tells me this by chance he is almost sober this evening the butcher on the rue du sien where i brought your meat knows you and old cabane the baker identified you with needless sarcasm they tell me hard tales of your mistress which i shall not believe they say she is idle and vain and pleasure-loving they say she is hare-brained and reckless the little sculptor on the ground floor who was buying rolls from the old carbane spoke to me to-night for the first time although we have always bowed to each other he said she was very good and very beautiful he has only seen her once and does not know her name i thanked him I don't know why I thanked him so warmly, Cabane said. Into this cursed street of the four winds, the four winds blow all things evil. The sculptor looked confused, but when he went out with his rolls, he said to me, I am sure, Monsieur, that she is good as she is beautiful. The cat had finished her toilet, and now, springing softly to the floor, went to the door and sniffed. He knelt beside her, and, unclasping the garter, held it for a moment in his hands. After a while, he said, there is a name engraved upon the silver clasp beneath the buckle it is a pretty name sylvia elvin sylvia is a woman's name elvin is the name of a town in paris in this quarter above all in the street of the four winds names are worn and put away as fashions change with the seasons i know the little town of elvin for there i met fate face to face and fate was unkind but do you know that an elven fate had another name, and that name was Sylvia? He replaced the garter and stood up looking at the cat crouched before the closed door. The name of elven has a charm for me. It tells me of meadows and clear rivers. The name of Sylvia troubles me like perfume from dead flowers. The cat mewed. Yes, yes, he said soothingly. I will take you back your sylvia is not my sylvia the world is wide and Alban is not unknown yet in the darkness and filth of poorer paris in the sad shadows of this ancient house these names are very pleasant to me he lifted her in his arms and strode through the silent corridors to the stairs down five flights and into the moonlit court past the little sculpture's den and then again in at the gate of the north wing and up the worm-eaten stairs he passed until he came to a closed door when he had stood knocking for a long time something moved behind the door it opened and he went in the room was dark as he crossed the threshold the cat sprang from his arms into the shadows he listened but heard nothing The silence was oppressive, and he struck a match. At his elbow stood a table, and on the table a candle and a gilded candlestick. This he lighted, then looked around. The chamber was vast, the hangings heavy with embroidery. Over the fireplace towered a carved mantle, gray with the ashes of dead fires. In a recess by the deep-set window stood a bed, from which the bedclothes soft and fine as lace trailed to the polished floor he lifted the candle above his head a handkerchief lay at his feet it was faintly perfumed he turned toward the windows in front of them was a canopy, and over it were flung pell-mell a gown of silk a heap of lace-like garments white and delicate as spiders meshes long crumpled gloves and on the floor beneath the stockings the little pointed shoes and one garter of rosy silk quaintly flowered and fitted with a silver clasp. Wondering, he stepped forward and drew the heavy curtains from the bed. For a moment, the candle flared in his hand. Then his eyes met two others, wide open, smiling. The candle flame flashed over hair, heavy as gold. She was pale, but not as white as he. Her eyes were untroubled as a child's. But he stared, trembling from head to foot, while the candle flickered in his hand. At last he whispered, Sylvia, it is I. Again he said, it is I. Then, knowing that she was dead, he kissed her on the mouth, and through the long watches of the night, the cat purred on his knee, tightening and relaxing her padded claws until the sky paled above the street of the four winds. End of section 9 section ten of the king in yellow by robert w chambers this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by eva stays the street of the first shell part one be of good cheer the sullen month will die and a young moon requite us by and by look how the old one meager bent and wane with age and fast is fainting from the sky the room was already dark the high roofs opposite cut off what little remained of the december daylight the girl drew her chair nearer the window and choosing a large needle threaded it knotting the thread over her fingers then she smoothed the baby garment across her knees and bending bit off the thread and drew the smaller needle from where it rested in the hem when she had brushed away the stray threads and bit of lace she laid it again over her knees crossingly then she slipped the threaded needle from her corsage and passed it through a button but as the button spun down the thread her hand faltered the thread snapped and the button rolled across the floor she raised her head her eyes were fixed on a strip of waning light above the chimneys from somewhere in the city came the sound like distant beating of drums and beyond far beyond a vague muttering now growing swelling rumbling in the distance like the pounding of surf upon the rocks now like the surf again receding growling menacing the cold had become intense a bitter piercing cold which strained and snapped at joist and beam and turned the slush of yesterday to flint from the street below every sound broke sharp and metallic the clatter of sabots the rattle of shutters or the rare sound of a human voice there was heavy, weighted with the black cold as with a pall. To breathe was painful, to move an effort. In the desolate sky there was something that wearied, in the brooding cloud, something that saddened, it penetrated the freezing city cut by the freezing river the splendid city with its towers and domes its quays and bridges its thousand spires it entered the squares it seized the avenues and the palaces stole across bridges and crept among the narrow streets of the latin quarter gray under the gray of the december sky Sadness, utter sadness, a fine icy sleet was falling, powdering the pavement with tiny crystalline dust. It sifted against the window panes and drifted in heaps along the sill. The light at the window had nearly failed, and the girl bent low over her work. Presently, she raised her head, brushing the curls from her eyes. Jack, dearest, don't forget to clean your palette." He said, all right, and picking up the palette, sat down upon the floor in front of the stove. His head and shoulders were in shadow, but the firelight fell across his knees and glimmered red on the blade of the pallet knife. Full in the firelight beside him stood a colored box. On the lid was carved, J. Trent, École des arts 1870. This inscription was ornamented with an American and a French flag the sleet blew against the window panes covering them with stars and diamonds then melting from the warmer air within ran down and froze again in fern-like terraces a dog whined and the patter of small paws sounded on the zinc behind the stove jack dear do you think hercules is hungry the patter of paws was redoubled behind the stove he's whining she continued nervously. And if it isn't because he's hungry, it's because—her voice faltered. A loud humming filled the air. The windows vibrated. Oh, Jack, she cried. Another—but her voice was drowned in a scream of a shell tearing through the clouds overhead. This is the nearest yet, she murmured. Oh, no. He answered cheerfully. It probably fell way over by Montemarita. And as she did not answer, he said again with exaggerated unconcern, they wouldn't take the trouble to fire at the Latin Quarter. Anyway, they haven't a battery that can hurt it. After a while, she spoke up brightly. Jack, dear, when are you going to take me to see Monsieur's West statues? I will bet he said, throwing down his palette and walking over to the window beside her, that Colette has been here to-day. Why? she asked, opening her eyes very wide. Then, oh, it is too bad. Really, men are tiresome when they think they know everything, and I warn you that if Monsieur West is vain enough to imagine that Colette— From the north another shell came whistling and quavering through the sky, passing above them with long-drawn screech which left the windows singing that he blurted out was too near for comfort they were silent for a while then he spoke again gaily go on sylvia and wither poor west but she only sighed. oh dear i can never seem to get used to the shells he sat down on the arm of the chair beside her her scissors fell jingling to the floor She tossed the unfinished frock after them, and putting both arms about his neck, drew him down into her lap. Don't go out tonight, Jack. He kissed her uplifted face. You know I must. Don't make it hard for me. But when I hear the shells, and and know you are out in the city. But they all fall in Montmartre. They may all fall in the Beaux Arts. You said yourself that two struck the Quai Orsay. Mere accident, Jack, have pity on me. Take me with you. And who will be there to get dinner? She rose and flung herself on the bed. Oh, I can't get used to it, and I know you must go, but I beg you not to be late to dinner. If you knew what I suffer, I I cannot help it, and you must be patient with me, dear. He said, It is as safe there as it is in our own house. She watched him fill for her the alcohol lamp, and when he had lighted it and had taken his hat to go, she jumped up and clung to him in silence. After a moment, he said, Now, Sylvia, remember my courage is sustained by yours. Come. I must go. She did not move, and he repeated, I must go. Then she stepped back, and he thought she was going to speak and waited but she only looked at him, and a little impatiently he kissed her again, saying, Don't worry, dearest. When he had reached the last flight of stairs on his way to the street, a woman hobbled out of the housekeeper's lodge, waving a letter and calling, Monsieur Jack! Monsieur Jack! This was left by Monsieur Fallaby. He took the letter, and leaning on the threshold of the lodge, read it, Dear Jack, I believe Braith is dead broke, and I'm sure Fallaby is. Braith swears he is in and Fallaby swears he is, so you can draw your own conclusions. I got a scheme for a dinner, and if it works, I will let you fellows in. Yours faithfully, West. P.S. Fallaby has shaken Hartman and his gang, thank the Lord. There is something rotten there. Or it may be he's only a miser. P.P.S. I'm more desperately in love than ever, but I'm sure she does not care a straw for me. "'All right,' said Trent with a smile to the concierge. "'But tell me, how is Papa Cotard?' "'The old woman shook her head and pointed to the curtain bed in the lodge. "'Pierre Cotterd," he cried cheerfully. "'How goes the wound today?' "'He walked over to the bed and drew the curtains. "'An old man was lying among the tumbled sheets. "'Better?' smiled Trent. "'Better,' repeated the man warily and after a pause. "'Have you any news, Monsieur Jack?' I haven't been out today. I will bring you any rumor I may hear, though no goodness knows I've got enough of rumors. He muttered to himself, then aloud, "Cheer up! You're looking better." And the sortie! Oh, the sortie! That's for this week. General Truchot sent orders last night. It will be terrible. It will be sickening. Thought Trent as he went out into the streets and turned the corner towards the Rue de Sienne. Slaughter! Slaughter! Phew! "'I'm glad I'm not going.' The street was almost deserted. A few women muffled in tattered military capes crept along the frozen pavement, and a wretchedly clad Gaiman hovered over the sewer hole on the corner of the boulevard. A rope around his waist held his rags together. From the rope hung a rat, still warm and bleeding. "'There's another one in there yet?' he yelled at Trent. "'I hit him, but he got away.' trent crossed the street and asked how much two francs for a quarter of the fat one that's what they give at the saint germain market a violent fit of coughing interrupted him but he wiped his face with the palm of his hand and looked cunningly at trent last week you could buy a rat for six francs but and here he swore vilely the rats have quit the Rue Sienne and they kill them now over by the new hospital "'I'll let you have this for seven francs. "'I can sell it for ten in the Isle St. Louis.' "'You lie,' said Trent, "'and let me tell you that if you try to swindle anybody in this quarter, "'the people will make short work of you and your rats.' "'He stood a moment, eyeing the gamin who pretended to snivel. "'Then he tossed him a franc, laughing. "'The child caught it, and, thrusting it into his mouth, "'wheeled about to the sewer hole. "'For a second he crouched, motionless, alert.' his eyes on the bars of the drain then leaping he hurled a stone into the gutter and trent left him to finish a fierce gray rat that writhed squealing at the mouth of the sewer suppose breath should come to that he thought poor little chap and hurrying he turned in the dirty passage de beaux arts and entered the third house to the left monsieur is at home quavered the old concierge Home, a garret absolutely bare save for the iron bedstead in the corner and the iron basin and pitcher on the floor. West appeared at the door, winking with much mystery, and motioned Trent to enter. Braith, who was painting in bed to keep warm, looked up, laughed, and shook hands. Any news? The perfunctory question was answered as usual by nothing but the cannon. Trent sat down on the bed. Where on earth did you get that? he demanded, pointing to a half finished chicken nestling in a wash basin. West grinned. Are you millionaires? You two out with it. Braith, looking a little ashamed, began. Oh, it's one of West's exploits, but was cut short by West, who said he would tell the story himself. You see, before the siege I had a letter of introductions to a type here, a fat banker. German-American variety, you know the species, I see. Well, of course I forgot to present the letter, but this morning, judging it to be a favorable opportunity, I called on him. The villain lives in comfort fires my boy fires in the anterooms the buttons finally condescends to carry my letters and cards up leaving me standing in the hallway which i did not like so i entered the first room i saw and nearly fainted at the sight of a banquet on a table by the fire down comes buttons very insolent no oh no his master is not at home and in fact is too busy to receive letters of introduction just now, the siege, and many business difficulties. I deliver a kick to Buttons, pick up this chicken from the table, toss my card onto the empty plate, and addressing Buttons as a species of Prussian pig, march out with the honors of war. Trent shook his head. I forgot to say that Hartman often dines there, and I draw my own conclusions, continued West now about this chicken half of it is for braith and myself and half for colette but of course you will help me eat my part because i'm not hungry neither am i began braith but trent with a smile at the pinched faces before him shook his head saying what nonsense you know i'm never hungry west hesitated reddened and then slicing off brace portion, but not eating any himself, said goodnight and hurried away to number 470, Rue Serpine, where lived a pretty girl named Colette, orphan after Sedan, and heaven alone knew where she got the roses in her cheeks, for the siege came hard on the poor. "'That chicken will delight her, but I really believe she's in love with West,' said Trent. Then walking over to the bed, "'See here, old man, no dodging.' you know, how much have you left? The other hesitated and flushed. Come, old chap, insisted Trent. Braith drew a purse from beneath his bolster and handed it to his friend with a simplicity that touched him. Seven sons, he counted. You make me tired. Why on earth don't you come to me? I'd take it ill. Breathe! how many times must i go over the same thing and explain it to you that because i have money it is my duty to share it and your duty and the duty of every american to share it with me you can't get a cent the city's blockaded and the american minister has his hands full with all the german riffraff and deuce knows what's why don't you act sensibly i-i will trent But it is an obligation that perhaps I can never even in part repay. I'm poor and— Of course you'll pay me. If I was a usurer, I would take your talent for security. When you are rich and famous— Don't, Trent. All right. Only no more monkey business. He slipped a dozen gold pieces into the purse and, tucking it again under the mattress, smiled at Braith. How old are you? He demanded. Sixteen trent laid his hand lightly on his friend's shoulder i'm twenty-two and i have the rights of a grandfather as far as you're concerned you'll do as i say until you're twenty-one the siege will be over by then i hope said braith trying to laugh but the prayer in their hearts how long O lord how long was answered by the swift scream of a shell soaring among the storm clouds of that december night end of section ten section eleven of the king and yellow by robert w chambers this librivox recording is in the public domain recording by eva stays the street of the first shell part two west standing in the doorway of a house in the rue serpentine was speaking angrily He said he didn't care whether Hartman liked it or not. He was telling him, not arguing with him. "'You call yourself an American?' He sneered, Berlin and hell are full of that kind of American. You come loafing about Colette with your pockets stuffed with white bread and beef and a bottle of wine at thirty francs, and you can't really afford to give a dollar to the American ambulance and public assistance, which Braith does, and he's half-starved. Hartman retreated to the curbstone, but West followed him, his face like a thundercloud don't you dare to call yourself a countryman of mine he growled no nor an artist either artists don't worm themselves into the service of the public defense where they do nothing but feed like rats on the people's food and i'll tell you now he continued dropping his voice for hartman had started as though stung You might better keep away from that Alsatian brasserie and that smug-faced thieves who haunted you know what they do with suspects. You lie, you hound, screamed Hartman, and flung the bottle in his hand straight at West's face. West had him by the throat in a second, and forcing him against the dead wall shook him wickedly. Now you listen to me, he muttered, through his clenched teeth. You are already a suspect, and, I swear, I believe you are a paid spy. It isn't my business to detect such vermin, and I don't intend to denounce you, but understand this. Colette don't like you, and I can't stand you, and if I catch you in this street again, I'll make it somewhat unpleasant. Get out, you sleek Prussian. Hartman had managed to drag a knife from his pocket, but Wes tore it from him and hurled him into the gutter. A gay man who had seen this burst into a peal of laughter, which rattled harshly in the silent street. Then everywhere windows were raised, and rows of haggard faces appeared, demanding to know why people should laugh in the starving city. "'Is it a victory?' murmured one. "'Look at that!' cried Wes, as Hartman picked himself up from the pavement. "'Look, you miser, look at those faces!' but Hartman gave him a look which he never forgot, and walked away without a word. Trent, who suddenly appeared at the corner, glanced curiously at West, who merely nodded toward his door, saying, "'Come in. Fallaby's upstairs.' "'What are you doing with that knife?' demanded Fallaby as he and Trent entered the studio. West looked at his wounded hand, which still clutched the knife, but saying, "'Cut myself by accident.' and tossed it into a corner and washed the blood from his fingers. Fallaby, fat and lazy, watched him without comment, but Trent, half-dividing how things had turned, walked over to Fallaby, smiling. "'I have a bone to pick with you,' he said. "'Where is it? I'm hungry,' replied Fallaby with affected eagerness, but Trent, frowning, told him to listen. "'How much did I advance you a week ago?' three hundred and eighty francs replied the other with a squirm of contrition where is it fallaby began a series of intricate explanations which were soon cut short by trent i know you blew it in you always blow it in I don't care a rap what you did before the siege, I know you are rich and have a right to dispose of your money as you wish to, and I also know that, generally speaking, it is none of my business, but now it is my business, as I have to supply the funds until you get some more, which you won't until the siege is ended one way or another. I wish to share what I have, but I won't see it thrown out the window. "'Oh, yes. Of course I know you will reimburse me, but that isn't the question. And anyway, it's the opinion of your friends, old man, that you will not be worse off for a little abstinence from fleshly pleasures. You are positively a freak in this famine-cursed city of skeletons.' "'I am rather stout,' he admitted. "'Is it true you are out of money?' demanded Trent. "'Yes, I am,' sighed the other." "'That roast-sucking pig on the Rue de Honoré, is it there yet?' continued Trent. "'What?' stammered the feeble one. "'Ah, I thought so. I caught you in ecstasy before that stocking pig at least a dozen times.' Then laughing, he presented Fallaby with a roll of twenty francs pieces. "'If these go for luxuries, you must live on your own flesh.' and went over to aid West, who sat beside the wash-basin, binding up his hand. West suffered him to tie the knot, and then said, "'You remember yesterday, when I left you and Braith to take the chicken to Colette?' "'Chicken, good heavens,' moaned Fallaby. "'Chicken,' replied West, enduring Fallaby's grief. "'I—that is, I must explain that things are changed. Colette and I are to be married.' What? What about the chicken? groaned Fallaby. Shut up, laughed Trent, and slipping his arm through Wes, walked to the stairway. The poor little thing, said Wes. Just think, not a splinter of firewood for a week, and wouldn't tell me because she thought I needed it for my clay figure. When I heard it, I smashed the smirking clay nymph to pieces, and the rest can freeze and be hanged. After a moment, he added timidly, won't you call on your way down and say Monsoir, It's number seventeen. Yes, said Trent, and he went out softly, closing the door behind. He stopped on the third landing, lighted a match, and scanned the numbers over the row of dingy doors, and knocked at number seventeen. C'est toi, Georges? The door opened. Oh, pardon, Monsieur Jack. I thought it was Monsieur West. "'then blushing furiously. "'Oh, I see you have heard. "'Oh, thank you so much for your wishes, "'and I'm sure we love each other very much. "'And I'm dying to see Sylvia and tell her aunt.' "'And what?' laughed Trent. "'I am very happy,' she sighed. "'He's pure gold,' returned Trent, "'and then gaily. "'I want you and George to come and dine with us tonight. "'It is a little treat. "'You see, tomorrow is Sylvia's fete." She will be nineteen. I have written to Thorne, and the Gernallax will come with their cousin Odile. Fallaby has engaged not to bring anybody but himself. The girl accepted shyly, charging him with loads of loving messages to Sylvia, and he said good night. He started up the street, walking swiftly, for it was bitter cold, and cutting across the rue de la Lune, he entered the rue de Sienne. The early winter night had fallen almost without warning, but the sky was clear and myriads of stars glittered in the heavens. The bombardment had become furious, a steady rolling thunder from the Prussian cannon punctuated by heavy shocks from the Mount Valerian. The shells streamed across the sky, leaving trails like shooting stars. And now, as he turned to look back, Rockets blue and red flared above the horizons from the Fort of Issy, and the Fortress of the North flame like a bonfire. "'Good news!' a man shouted over by the boulevard St. Germain, as if by magic the streets were filled with people, shivering, chattering, people with shrunken eyes. "'Jacques!' cried one. "'The army of the Loire!' "'Eh?' Mon vieux. it has come then at last I told thee-i told thee to morrow to night who knows is it true is it a sortie someone said o oh god a sortie and my son another cried to the seine they say one can see the signals of the army of the loire from the pont neuf there was a child standing near trent who kept repeating mamma mamma then tomorrow we may eat white bread and beside him an old man swang stumbling his shrivelled hands crusted to his breast muttering as if insane could it be true who has heard the news the shoemaker on the rue de bouchy had it from a mobile who heard it from a froncteur repeated it to a captain of the national guard trent followed the throng surging through the rue du sien to the river rocket after rocket clove the sky and now from montmartre the cannon clanged and the batteries on the montparnasse joined in with a crash the bridge was packed with people trent said who has seen the signals of the army of the loire we are waiting for them was the reply he looked toward the north suddenly the huge silhouette of the arc de triomphe sprang into black relief against the flash of a cannon the boom of the gun rolled along the quay, and the old bridge vibrated. Again, over by the Point du Jour, a flash and heavy explosion shook the bridge, and then the whole eastern bastion of the fortifications blazed and crackled, sending a red flame into the sky. "'Has anybody seen the signals yet?' he asked again. "'We are waiting,' was reply. "'Yes, waiting.' murmured a man behind him, waiting, sick, starved, freezing, but waiting. Is it a sortie? They go gladly. Is it to starve? They starve. They have no time to think of surrender. Are they heroes? These Parisians? Answer me, Trent. The American ambulance surgeon turned about and scanned the parapets of the bridge. Any news, doctor? Asked Trent mechanically. News? News? said the doctor i don't know any i haven't time to know any what are these people after they say that the army of the loire has signaled mont valerian poor devils the doctor glanced about him for an instant and then i'm so harried and worried that i don't know what to do after the last sortie we had the work of fifty ambulances on our poor little corps tomorrow there's another sortie and i wish you fellows would come over to headquarters we may need volunteers how is madame he added abruptly well replied trent but she seems to go more nervous every day i ought to be with her now take care of her said the doctor then with a sharp look at the people i can't stop now good-night and he hurried away muttering poor devils trent leaned over the parapet and blinked at the black river surging through the arches. Dark objects, carried swiftly on the breast of the current, struck with a grinding, tearing noise against the stone piers, spun about for an instant, and hurried away into darkness. The ice from the marne. As he stood staring into the water, a hand was laid on his shoulder. "'Hello, Southwark,' he cried, turning round. "'This is a queer place for you. Trent.' "'I have something to tell you. Don't stay here. Don't believe in the army of the Loire.' And the attaché of the American legation slipped his arm through Trent's and drew him towards the Louvre. "'Then it's another lie,' said Trent bitterly. "'Worse. We know at the legation—' "'I can't speak of it, but it's not what I have to say. Something's happened this afternoon.' The Alsatian Brasserie was visited, and an American named Hartman has been arrested. Do you know him? I know a German who calls himself an American. His name is Hartman. Well, he was arrested about two hours ago. They mean to shoot him. What? Of course we at the legation can't allow them to shoot him offhand, but the evidence seems conclusive. Is he a spy? well the papers seized in his rooms are pretty damning proofs and besides he was caught they say swindling the public food committee he drew rations for fifty how i don't know he claimed to be an american artist here and we have been obliged to take notice of it at the legation it's a nasty affair to cheat the people at such a time is worse than robbing the poor box cried trent angrily let them shoot him He's an American citizen. Yes, oh yes, said the other with bitterness. American citizenship is a precious privilege when every goggle-eyed German. His anger choked him. Southwark shook hands with him warmly. It can't be helped. We must own the carrion. I am afraid you may be called upon to identify him as an American artist, he said with a ghost of a smile on his deep-lined face, and walked away through the courierie and Trent swore silently for a moment, and then drew out his watch. Seven o'clock. Sylvia will be anxious, he thought, and hurried back to the river. The crowd was still huddled, shivering on the bridge, a somber, pitiful congregation peering out into the night for the signals of the army of the Loire. And their hearts beat time to the poundings of the guns, their eyes lighted with each flash from the bastions, and hope rose with the drifting rockets. A black cloud hung over the fortifications. From horizon to horizon the cannon smoke stretched in wavering bands, now capping the spires and domes with cloud, now blowing in streamers and shreds along the streets, now descending from the housetops, enveloping quays, bridges, and rivers, in a sulfurous mist and through the smoke pal the lightning of the cannon played while from time to time a rift above showed a fathomless black vault set with stars he turned again into the rue de sienne that sad abandoned street with its rows of closed shutters and desolate rank of unlighted lamps he was a little nervous and wished once or twice for a revolver but the slinking forms which passed him in the darkness were too weak with hunger to be dangerous he thought and he passed on unmolested to his doorway but there somebody sprang at his throat over and over the icy pavement he rolled with his assailant tearing at the noose about his neck and then with a wretch sprang to his feet get up he cried to the other slowly and with great deliberation a small game picked himself out of the gutter and surveyed trent with disgust that's a nice clean trick said trent a whelp of your age you'll finish against a dead wall give me that cord the urchin handed him the noose without a word trent struck a match and looked at his assailant it was the rat-killer of the day before hm i thought so he muttered Chien, c'est toi, said the Gaiman tranquilly. The impudence, the overpowering audacity of the ragamuffin took Trent's breath away. Do you know, you young strangler, he gasped, that they shoot thieves of your age? The child turned a passionless face to Trent. Shoot, then. That was too much, and he turned on his heel and entered his hotel, groping up the unlighted stairway he at last reached his own landing and felt about in the darkness for the door from his studio came the sound of voices west's hearty laugh and fallaby's chuckle and at last he found the knob and pushing back the door stood a moment confused by the light hello jack cried west you're a pleasant creature inviting people to dine and letting them wait here's fallaby weeping with hunger shut up observed the latter perhaps he's been out to buy a turkey he's been out grotting look at his noose laughed grunelac so now we know where you get your cash added was. vive la coup de Pierre trent shook hands with everybody and laughed at sylvia's pale face i didn't mean to be late i stopped on the bridge a moment to watch the bombardment were you anxious sylvia she smiled and murmur Oh, no. But her hand dropped into his and tightened convulsively. To the table, shouted Fallaby, and then uttered, a joyous whoop. Take it easy, observed Thorne with a remnant of manners. You're not the host, you know. Maria Grunelac, who had been chattering with Colette, jumped up and took Thorne's arm, and Monsieur Grunelac drew Adele's arm through his. Trent, bowing gravely, offered his own arm to Colette. West took in Sylvia, and Fallaby hovered anxiously in the rear. You march around the table three times singing the Marseillaise, explained Sylvia, and Monsieur Fallaby pounds on the table and beats time. Fallaby suggested that they could sing after dinner, but his protest was drowned in the ringing chorus. au arms formez vos battalions, around the room they marched singing, Marchand, Marchand with all their might, while Fallaby, with very bad grace, hammered on the table, consoling himself a little with the hope that the exercise would increase his appetite. Hercules, the black and tan, fled under the bed, from which retreated he yapped and whined until dragged out by Gernilac and placed in O'Dell's lap. "'And now,' said Trent gravely, when everybody was seated, "'listen,' and he read the menu. "'Beef-soup à la Siege de Paris?' Fish, sardines à la white wine, roti, red wine, fresh beef à la sortie, vegetables, canned beans à la chapat, canned peas, gravelette, pretées irlandaise, miscellaneous, cold corned beef à la thias, stewed prunes à la garibaldi, dessert, dried prunes, white bread, currant jelly, tea, café, liqueurs, pipe, and cigarettes. Fallaby applauded frantically and Sylvia served the soup isn't it delicious sighed Odell marie grenouille accepted her soup in rapture not at all like horse and i don't care what they say horse doesn't taste like beef whispered colette to west Fallaby who had finished began to caress his chin and eye the tureen have some more old chap inquired trent monsieur Fallaby cannot have any more announced Sylvia i am saving this for the concierge Bellaby transferred his eyes to the fish. The sardines, hot from the grill, were a great success, while the others were eating. Sylvia ran downstairs with the soup for the old concierge and her husband, and when she hurried back, flushed and breathless, and had slipped into her chair with a happy smile at Trent, that young man arose, and silence fell over the table. For an instant he looked at Sylvia and thought he had never seen her so beautiful. "'You all know,' he began that to-day is my wife's nineteenth birthday. Vallaby, bubbling with enthusiasm, waved his glass in circles about his head to the terror of Odell and Colette, his neighbors, and Thorne, Wes, and Gurnalek refilled the glasses three times before the storm of applause which the toast of Sylvia had provoked subsided. Three times the glasses were filled and emptied to Sylvia, and again to Trent, who protested. This is irregular." he cried. The next toast is to the twin republics, France and America. "'To the republics! To the republics!' they cried, and the toast was drunk amid shouts of "'Viva la France! Vive l'America! Vive la nation!' Then Trent, with a smile at West, offered the toast to a happy pair, and everybody understood, and Sylvia leaned over and kissed Colette while Trent bowed to West. The beef was eaten in comparative calm but when it was finished and a portion of it set aside for the old people below trent cried drink to paris may she rise from her ruins and crush the invader and the cheers rang out drowning for a moment the monotonous thunder of the prussian guns pipes and cigarettes were lighted and trent listened an instant to the animated chatter around him broken by ripples of laughter from the girls or the mellow chuckle of fallaby then he turned to West. There is going to be a sortie tonight, he said. I saw the American ambulance surgeon just before I came in, and he asked me to speak to you fellows. Any aid we can give him will not come amiss. Then, dropping his voice and speaking in English, As for me, I shall go out with the ambulance tomorrow morning. There is, of course, no danger, but it is just as well to keep it from Sylvia. West nodded. Thorne and Grunelac, who had heard, broke in and offered assistance, and Fallaby volunteered with a groan. All right, said Trent rapidly. No more now, but meet me at ambulance headquarters tomorrow morning at eight. Sylvia and Colette, who were becoming uneasy at conversation in English, now demanded to know what they were talking about. What does a sculpture usually talk about? cried West with a laugh. Odell glanced reproachfully at Thorne, her fiancé. You are not French, you know, and it is none of your business this war, said Odell with much dignity Thorn looked meek, but West assumed an air of outraged virtue. It seems, he said to Fallaby, that a fellow cannot discuss the beauties of Greek sculpture in his mother tongue without being openly suspected. Colette placed her hand over his mouth and turning to Sylvia murmured, They are horribly untruthful, these men. "'I believe the word for ambulance is the same in both languages,' said Marie Grinilac saucily. "'Sylvia, don't trust Monsieur Trent.' "'Jack,' whispered Sylvia, "'promise me.' A knock at the studio door interrupted her. "'Come in!' cried Fallaby. but Trent sprang up and, opening the door, looked out. Then, with a hasty excuse to the rest, he stepped into the hallway and closed the door. When he returned, he was grumbling. "'What is it, Jack?' cried west what is it repeated trent savagely i'll tell you what it is i have received a dispatch from the american minister to go at once and identify and claim as a fellow countryman and brother artist a rascally thief and a german spy don't go suggested fallaby if i don't they'll shoot him at once let them growled thorn do you fellows know who it is Hartman shouted west inspired sylvia sprang up deathly white but Odile slipped her arm around her and supported her to a chair saying calmly sylvia has fainted it is the hot room bring some water trent brought it at once sylvia opened her eyes and after a moment rose and supported by marie grunelac and trent passed into the bedroom it was a signal for breaking up, and everybody came and shook hands with Trent, saying they hoped Sylvia would sleep it off and that it would be nothing. When Marie Golac took leave of him, she had his eyes, but he spoke to her cordially and thanked her for her aid. "'Anything I can do, Jack?' inquired West, lingering, then hurried downstairs to catch up with the rest. Trent leaned over the banisters, listening to their footsteps and chatter and then the lower door banged and the house was silent. He lingered, staring down into the blackness, biting his lips. Then, with an impatient movement, I am crazy, he muttered, and lighting a candle went into the bedroom. Sylvia was lying on the bed. He bent over her, smoothing the curly hair on her forehead. "'Are you better, dear Sylvia?' she did not answer but raised her eyes to his for an instant he met her gaze but what he read there sent a chill to his heart and he sat down covering his face with his hands at last she spoke in a voice changed and strained a voice which he had never heard and he dropped his hands and listened bolt upright in his chair jack it has come at last i have feared it and trembled ah how often i have lain awake at night with this on my heart and prayed that i might die before you should ever know of it for i love you jack and if you go away i cannot live i have deceived you it happened before i knew you but since that first day when you found me weeping in the luxembourg and spoke to me jack i have been faithful to you in every thought and deed i loved you from the first and did not dare to tell you this fearing that you would go away, and since then my love has grown, grown, and oh, I suffered, but I dare not tell you, and now you know, but you do not know the worst, for him, now, what do I care, he was cruel, oh, so cruel, she hid her face in her arms, must I go on, must I tell you, can you not imagine, oh, Jack, he did not stir, his eyes seemed dead, I, I was so young, I knew nothing, and he said, said that he loved me. Trent rose and struck the candle with his clenched fist, and the room was dark. The bells of St. Sulpice tolled the hour, and she started up, speaking with feverish haste. I must finish, when you told me you loved me, you, you asked me nothing, but then, even then, it was too late, and that other life which binds me to him must stand for between you and me there is another whom he has claimed and is good too he must not die they cannot shoot him for that other's sake trent sat motionless but his thoughts ran on an interminable whirl sylvia little sylvia who shared with him his student life who bore with him the dreary desolation of the siege without complaint This slender, blue-eyed girl whom he was so quietly fond of, whom he teased or caressed as the whim-suited, who sometimes made him the least bit impatient with her passionate devotion to him, could this be the same Sylvia who lay weeping there in the darkness? Then he clenched his teeth, let him die, let him die, but then, for Sylvia's sake and for that other's sake, yes, he would go. He must go. His duty was plain before him, but Sylvia, he could not be what he had been to her, and yet a vague terror seized him. Now all was sad. Trembling, he struck a light. She lay there, her curly hair tumbled about her face, her small white hands pressed to her breast. He could not leave her, and he could not stay. He never knew before that he loved her. She had been a mere comrade, this girl wife of his. Ah, he loved her now with all his heart and soul, and he knew it, only when it was too late. Too late? Why? When he thought of that other one, binding her, linking her forever to the creature who stood in danger of his life, with an oath he sprang to the door, but the door would not open, or was it that he pressed it back, locked it, and flung himself on his knees beside the bed, knowing that he dared not, for his life's sake, leave what was his all in life. End of section 11
0: What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra low net carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health.